0: Hello, welcome to Challenger Approaching, a podcast about the history behind every major franchise featured in the Smash Brothers series. I'm your host, freelance games journalist and author, Ben Bertolli. Here on Challenger Approaching, I cover key entries, interesting game details, and fun trivia about a single series. A guest expert or super fan will also be dropping by to give us the lowdown on their favorite game or a moment in the series history that they find intriguing and my normal warning that I'm not so great at pronouncing Japanese words and names, and they do tend to pop up, so I'll try my best to get them right. For our final episode of the first season, we're going to take a swing at the big ape who went from villain to hero. He's the leader of the bunch, you know him well. Look, I'm not going to sing the whole verse. Make sure the door to the banana horde is locked and take a seat. It's Donkey Kong history time. In December of 1979, Nintendo released their newest arcade title, Radar Scope, in various locations around Japan. The multifaceted toy company had been in the arcade business for under three years, but the growing interest in their coin-operated games had resulted in a string of well-received titles in the Japanese market. RadarScope, the first game ever developed by the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto, performed admirably. In fact, it was second only to Pac-Man, convincing Nintendo that the game could succeed elsewhere. When RadarScope launched in North America in the fall of 1980, it didn't find many fans. This lack of interest was devastating for Nintendo, who had already shipped dozens of RadarScope arcade machines overseas. Nintendo needed a game that could really pull in players, and decided their best option was to convert the leftover RadarScope machines into a new hit title that could run on the same hardware. The only problem was, none of the games they had already developed fit the bill. RadarScope developer Shigeru Miyamoto was tasked with coming up with this new must-play game that would appeal to Western audiences. With a budget of $100,000 and the supervision of the highly regarded Gunpei Yokoi, Miyamoto set to work. It just so happened that at the same time, Nintendo was in negotiations to acquire the license for Popeye the Sailor Man, and had been working on some game ideas using characters from that property. When Nintendo failed to win the license, Miyamoto felt he could salvage the game by creating new characters that fit into the love triangle between Popeye, Olive Oil, and the hulking Bluto. Popeye soon became a carpenter, Olive Oil became his kidnapped girlfriend, and Bluto became the carpenter's chest-pounding pet ape. Since the plan was to win over North American audiences, Nintendo was adamant that their new game have a catchy name that would draw in players. Miyamoto decided to name the game after its mighty antagonist, springing for the strange moniker of Donkey Kong. There are many rumors as to how this name came about. One rumor, proven to be false years later, was that the game was initially called Monkey Kong and that a misheard phone call or smudged fax led to the now iconic name. The more credible backstory claims Miyamoto wanted a word that meant silly and stubborn, both of which were associated with the English word Donkey. Kong was a common slang for gorilla at the time, due to the long-standing property of the movies featuring King Kong, a likeness that would come back to threaten Nintendo in the near future. The game was simple, with the main character working his way through four different levels on his quest to save his lady love from the clutches of the devious Donkey Kong. Players would have to avoid rolling barrels, sentient flames, and bouncing springs if they wanted to reach the end, and even then the game just kept going, getting more difficult with each round. With Donkey Kong ready to roll, Nintendo of America set to work converting their warehouse of radar scope machines and translating the small bits of text and character information that they had on hand. The playable carpenter was dubbed Jumpman, a name that would draw a likeness to the popular Pac Man game, as well as Sony's fast selling Walkman cassette players. Jumpman's damsel in distress was named Paulina, after the wife of Nintendo Redmond's warehouse manager, Don James. While most American Nintendo executives still weren't pleased with the bizarre title of the game's gorilla villain, they threw caution to the wind, convinced by Miyamoto that the name would draw a crowd. As you probably guessed, Donkey Kong was a major success. It was exactly the hit Nintendo needed to break into the North American market and keep their Japanese fans content. Players pumped hundreds of thousands of quarters into the machines in its first year, and Nintendo could hardly keep up with the demand for new Donkey Kong arcade cabinets. By October of 1981, Nintendo was selling 4,000 units of Donkey Kong a month. By June of 82, they had up to 60,000 units sold, a value of roughly $180 million. In fact, Donkey Kong remained Nintendo's top seller until the summer of 1983, earning the company another $100 million. Featured on lunchboxes, board games, and furry gorilla plush dolls, Donkey Kong was a phenomenon. The game was so big, it even got its own song on Buckner and Garcia's 1982 album, Pac-Man Fever. Do the Donkey Kong was the second single off the album, which was quickly certified gold with over 500,000 copies sold. Nintendo's only hurdle in Donkey Kong's meteoric rise to the top of the arcade charts was a massive lawsuit from the one and only Universal Studios. The film company accused Nintendo of illegally imitating their well-known King Kong franchise. This cry of trademark infringement was initially met with fear from Nintendo of America's main lawyer, Howard Lincoln, a man who would eventually become the company's senior vice president and chairman in later years. Lincoln initially inclined to settle the lawsuit for $5 to $7 million, but after doing some research on King Kong, decided instead to fight Universal in court. While Universal claimed Donkey Kong's story and characters were a direct copy of King Kong and demanded Nintendo pay them a cut of both past and future profits, Nintendo approached the controversy from a different angle. The gaming giant had hired one John Kirby to represent them in court, and Kirby was responsible for the damning evidence that not only was Donkey Kong different from Universal's King Kong, but also that Universal didn't even own the rights to the monstrous movie gorilla in the first place. As it turned out, Universal had claimed that they could use King Kong in their movies less than a decade prior by proving the ape and his story were in the public domain. With this important bit of information, Nintendo was ruled to be not guilty, and Universal was ordered to pay all damages and fees Nintendo had endured. There's a lot more to the 1982 Universal vs. Nintendo case, and it's certainly something you should read up on. And if you happen to listen to my last episode of Challenger Approaching, you may know that lawyer John Kirby may have been the inspiration for the name of Nintendo's iconic pink puff. It's just a rumor, but it's a fun connection nonetheless. Following Donkey Kong and the arcades were two much less successful sequels. The first, 1982's Donkey Kong Jr., put players in control of the ape's young son as he attempted to free his father from a cage guarded by Jumpman, who had officially been given the name of Mario. Maybe you've heard of him. 1983's Donkey Kong 3 was a far cry from the original two platforming titles, dropping Mario altogether in favor of Stanley the Exterminator. Stanley used his bug spray to kill, well, bugs, as well as keep Donkey Kong at bay, forcing him to the top of his swinging vines. Donkey Kong 3 was a bit too repetitive and often seen as the worst of the original DK Arcade Trilogy. Meanwhile, the original Donkey Kong was ported to various consoles and handhelds over the years, and was famously bundled with the non-Nintendo ColecoVision in the early days of its popularity. Nearly a decade after Donkey Kong's arcade sequels and home console ports, Nintendo's fearsome ape was far from most gamers' minds. Nintendo had found new hit games and characters to wow their now-enormous fanbase. In fact, Donkey Kong's original foe, Mario, was now Nintendo's unstoppable sales juggernaut, helping their NES and Super NES home consoles sell millions of units worldwide. But while Mario was making a name for himself in the late 80s, rival gaming company Sega was determined to eclipse his popularity with games, systems, and a mascot of their own. As 1992 rolled around, Nintendo sat in an unthinkable second place behind Sega. The longtime king of home gaming was desperate to find the next must-play series to put the Super Nintendo back on top. In 1993, a small group of Nintendo's top businessmen and developers were invited to an updated farmhouse in the English countryside for a surprise unveiling. Tim and Chris Stamper, founders of the game studio Rare, had cobbled together a nifty boxing demo to show off their unmatched game development skills and the capabilities of their brand new Silicon Graphics workstations. The workstations, which cost a staggering $116,000 apiece, were quite the gamble even for a financially stable studio such as Rare. In those days, almost every game on the Super Nintendo, save for a few blocky 3D titles such as the original Star Fox, used a standard 2D pixel look. With the help of their cutting-edge Silicon Graphics workstations, the Stampers had managed to coax the computing power inside Nintendo's 16-bit system into running a stunning pseudo-3D world. The key was using the workstations to pre-render detailed 3D models and settings, each of which was scaled down and digitally adhered to the top of normal two-dimensional environments. The Nintendo executives were so stunned by the demo's visuals that some of them began to peer under nearby desks, searching for a hidden computer or arcade processor. Could the Super NES really produce graphics so realistic and fluid? It wasn't long after this display that the stampers got word that Nintendo wanted to become more involved with Rare. The Japanese gaming giant would purchase 49% of the company, providing them with enough revenue to purchase more Silicon Graphics workstations, and officially promoting them to the status of second-party developer. Nintendo was adamant that Rare put their new pseudo-3D spin on one of their classic franchises. In a surprising turn, the Stampers requested one of Nintendo's oldest villains, the barrel-tossing, damsel-snatching Donkey Kong, as their character of choice. Nintendo agreed. Over the next 18 months, the team assigned to Donkey Kong worked day and night to bring the Ape's swinging jungle journey to life. They settled on creating a classic hop-and-bop platformer, redesigning Donkey Kong with a new fighting spirit and a swanky red tie. Initially, they wanted to include Donkey Kong Jr. as DK's youthful sidekick, but felt his design didn't work well in contrast to the heroic gorilla. Instead, Rare decided to introduce their own Kong into the mix, an aerobic chimp in a baseball cap who would be known as Diddy. Rare put DK and Diddy on a mission to reclaim a stolen banana hoard and thwart the devilish King K. rule. Players would control the pair as they bowled over reptile villains, blasted from barrels, and hitched a ride atop various animal friends. Making the boxing demo had been a breeze compared to the complex issues and insane computing power needed to produce every aspect of Rare's next big hit. The Silicon Graphics workstations, while powerful, still had to work all night, surrounded by blasting air conditioners just to render simple backgrounds, baddies, and bananas. One UK advert for the game, featuring a picture of the newly designed Donkey Kong, would later state, It's taken 22 man years, 32 megs, 32,768 colors, and one supercomputer to make him look this gruesome. When Donkey Kong Country finally launched in November of 1994, it was lauded as a masterpiece a huge step forward for the aging Super Nintendo, and exactly what the system needed to put the Genesis permanently in second place. The Stamper's gamble had paid off in a big way, and Donkey Kong Country would go on to sell over 9 million copies, only beaten in sales by Nintendo's own Super Mario World. Rare's redesign of the Donkey Kong character would go on to represent the now-heroic ape in every game moving forward, and there were a lot of them. Two direct sequels to Donkey Kong Country were produced by Rare for the Super Nintendo in the two years following the original. Diddy's Conquest saw Donkey Kong kidnapped, putting players in charge of Diddy and his newly introduced girlfriend, Dixie. Many consider Diddy's Conquest to be the best in the DKC series, especially when it comes to the game's stellar soundtrack. Dixie's Double Trouble, the third entry, lost many of the rare developers who had worked on the previous two games and hit store shelves after Nintendo's new home console, the Nintendo 64. Though it was still loved by critics and fans alike, it was the lowest selling title of the original trilogy and is often criticized as the worst of the three Donkey Kong Country outings for the Super Nintendo. Personally, I don't agree with this sentiment, as Donkey Kong Country 3 remains one of my favorite Donkey Kong games of all time. With each new Donkey Kong Country came a new Donkey Kong Land game for the Game Boy. These handheld versions kept the same Kongs and many of the same environments, but scaled down the game's levels and baddies to fit within the Game Boy's much less powerful processing capabilities. Each game in the Donkey Kong Land trilogy was denoted by a bright banana yellow cartridge, a distinct look that made the game stand out at a glance. The Game Boy titles sold well, and were commended as some of the best platforming games for Nintendo's classic handheld. As the Super Nintendo faded into the background, the developers at Rare began work on new projects for the Nintendo 64. One project, a racing game known as Pro-Am 64, was a 3D follow-up to Rare's popular RC Pro-Am series for the NES. The game was to feature a new Rare mascot dubbed Timber the Tiger. When shown to the bigwigs at Nintendo, they recommended that Rare push a different, more established character into the spotlight, Diddy Kong. Thus, Pro-Am 64 became Diddy Kong Racing, a racing and adventure hybrid set on a fantastical island. At the same time Diddy Kong Racing was being developed, a team at Rare was also hard at work on a new game about a bear and a bird called Banjo-Kazooie. This new 3D platformer was set to release in the fall of 1997 as the Nintendo 64's must-have holiday game. When the Banjo team came clean to Nintendo that they couldn't hit their deadline, the Diddy Kong Racing team stepped up to take the spot. The game managed to make it to market on Banjo-Kazooie's original release date and managed to keep Rare's sterling reputation intact. In a strange twist of fate, it was actually Diddy Kong Racing that introduced Banjo to gamers, and not his titular game. The Dopey Honey Bear, along with a few other critters, had been added to the racing title as a fun nod to Rare's current and upcoming games. After a string of critically acclaimed hits, Rare finally began work on an official follow-up to the Donkey Kong Country series for the Nintendo 64. Not satisfied with saddling players with the side-scrolling restrictions of the Super Nintendo, Rare decided to make their new adventure a 3D platformer. This time, players would have five Kongs to choose from and an enormous island to explore. With 8 worlds and roughly 1,000 items to collect, the game was big. Possibly a bit too big. Daunting size aside, the game looked fantastic, introduced some fun new characters, and sold over 5 million copies. Not too shabby. Here to speak with me about his connections to and influence on the world of Donkey Kong is legendary gaming composer Grant Kirkhope. How are you, Grant?
1: Legendary. That's what I am. God, I wish I was. That just means old, right? This means you're an old person.
0: I don't think so. I think a lot of people would uh, consider you, you know, one of the greats, right?
1: Oh, God, I wish I was.
0: (laughs) All right, so since we're talking about the history of Donkey Kong... Uh, right. Did you play any of the Donkey Kong arcade games or Super Nintendo games before you started with Rare?
1: So I played the original arcade machine, definitely. Oh, yeah, tons, of, tons and tons of times played that. Um, but I, I just, I kind of, I guess because I'm a bit older, I didn't start really gaming until a bit later, like on home consoles. So I had the original Game Boy and then I got a SNES, and I didn't really play Donkey Kong Country in the SNES. Um, uh, but I did play it when I got to Rare because obviously I did the conversion of Donkey Kong to Diddy Kong's Quest, Day Wise's tunes from the SNES to the uh Game Boy. So I did play I obviously I did play it then, but I didn't play it before.
0: Right. So that was one of your first projects was uh converting?
1: Yeah, it was it was my very first project when I got to write. Like when I, the first day I got there, Dave came in and showed me how to work the the, uh, the Game Boy thing, and, like, it was all in hex, and I couldn't do it, and it was too difficult for me, and I, was, I thought I'd have to quit first day. <laughs> um, and then I said to Robin Beanland, I said, you know, Robin, I just can't understand it. It's in hex, it's too complicated. I'm used to MIDI files and, you know, vaguely musical things, not like, you know, four white numbers on a black screen like it was, you know, for, for notes, etc. he said, look, just get Dave back tomorrow and write it down every single step of the way. So I said, look, Dave, can you come back and show me t- again today because I'm useless, you know? So he, Dave came back over. Dave was brilliant on the all that kind of stuff <clears throat> and i said i said, right step one you know press alt four whatever step two press this step and i wrote it down like that every single step so and then i then i got to grips with it and i actually quite enjoyed doing the conversion in the end but at the start it was like oh my god how am i going to do this <laughs> um but um because on the original game boy you only got three note channels monophonic and a noise channel so you could have one note per channel so you could write have some kind of note that was the bass, some kind of note that was that, that was kind of like the harmony and some kind of note that was a tune and plus the noise channel kind of went you know um do, do right, to all the noises and <laughs> um, that kind of thing so yeah so then that's that's my first job so so yes yeah, so i was and i played the original games you know then when i got there
0: so Give us a quick history of your musical career before you went to Rare.
1: Okay, so I did the normal through normal school thing, and I, I was playing rock bands and stuff and playing trumpet classically trained. And then I got to got to 22 after being, to, being at university. I did a music degree at the, the run on the of Music in Manchester and uh, passed that uh, as a, a classical trained trumpet player. And then proceeded to forget about all that and playing rock bands for the next 11 years. Uh, So I kind of did a bit on trumpet and various bands and did a bit on guitar and kind of some did well and some did terribly. So I was often on unemployment benefit for that 11 years, really, from 22 to 33. And then Robin Beanland got a job at. Uh, we we're, we're, so were friends at that point, I and mean, he played in local bands in the area that I was in, like sort of Harrogate, Leeds area. And then um, about he, he often said, "Oh yeah, by the way, I've got a job." And like I was like, "What?" Like no one I knew got a job, right? Everyone that I knew just played in bands and an unemployment benefit. It was like a bit of a like, "What you got? What a job?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go and work at this video games company and write music." I was like, "What? They have, they have tunes, right? You know?" I couldn't believe it, you know. So <laughs> he went. And about a year and a half went by and I was still playing in bands, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, et cetera, you know, doing all the stuff. And he said to me, you know, Greg, you've been on unemployment benefit off and on for like 11 years. <laughs> don't you think that's a long time? So, well, you know, it's just quite a long time. And I just, I just thought I'd never have a career. I thought I'd just be like a tramp by the end of it all. I'd play in bands and it'd all fail. I'd eventually end up on the street somewhere. That's what I thought. He said, look, why don't you try to do what I'm doing? So, you know, try to write me to the games. And I said, well, you know, and I'm, I did play a lot of games at the time, you know, so I did kind of um, know how it was going. So he recommended that I buy a copy of Cubase and an Atari ST and uh, like a synth module, which was an EMU Proteus FX at the time. And I spent about a year writing music that I thought was suitable for video games. And I sent Rare five cassette tapes over the course of that year and uh, never got a reply. And then literally out the blue, a letter saying, please come for an interview at Rare and can you write three pieces to bring down with you? I had to write like a fighting game guitar-based piece a Batman sort of style orchestral piece and some kind of platform jolly along tune. So I hurriedly wrote that in about a week and went down for the interview and Dave Wise and Simon Farmer, who's a general manager interviewed me. And uh, and that was in the Friday and then the Monday got a letter and I got the job, couldn't believe it. (laughs) Uh, So I I said to my mother, I think I lived with my mother a lot, I was at home with my mother all that time. Uh, and she, I said, you know, I'm, you're not going to believe me, but I'm moving out. you like, she's like, what? She's like, what? You've been like, <laughs> you know, 33 years. So yeah, I'm going to work at work at this company in the it's called Rare. So off I went, and uh, that's how it started. Wow. So that was October 15th, uh, yeah, so uh, October 15th, 1995.
0: Was it your first day, or it was that's the first day. Okay. So you went on to work on a bunch of games that were huge successes. GoldenEye. I know you were kind of pulled off that one. On to Banjo Kazooie. Which you know was a huge hit in its own regard. So at what point, when you knew that Donkey Kong '64 was in development, did they pull you onto that team? Did they say, Grant, you're going to be on the you know music for this, or did uh, you you know request to be on that?
1: So like it's a, it's a dim, dark, distant past, right? So the way I remember it is, I was mm-hmm. I did the Dream thing, and then to Banjo Kazooie. Me and Dave Wise were on Banjo Kazooie together for, at the start of it. Well, more on Dream really. So like at the same point in time. Um, they had that game, sort of RC Prime Racing, whatever it was called, one of the old mm-hmm. uh, uh, games on the Spectrum, and they decided to make it into a racing game, uh, which turned into Diddy Kong Racing in the end. And so at that point, they said, look, it's Daft I and mean, you and Dave are in the same game. Dave's going to go and do the racing game. You can continue with the dream, and then it turned into Banjo, and that's how that went. So Dave was doing Diddy Kong Racing, and then after that, he went on to do the Dinosaur Planet thing, which turned, which turned into Star Fox Avengers, I think, something like that. And so Evelyn Fisher, who was still there, She had done Donkey Kong 2 on the snares and the third one by herself. The, the, I can't remember what that was called, the last one.
0: Dixie Kong's Double Trouble? That's the one, yeah, she
1: did that. So She was on the Donkey Kong team, so she was doing the Donkey Kong 64. So she started it, and then I can't remember what happened, um, but George Andres, who was the assistant designer on Banjo-Kazooie, went to do the the, the lead design on Donkey Kong 64. And because me and George were mates, um i think he asked me to do it i think that's how i remember it basically said to me look can you come and do dk64 and i was like yeah of course i can but i was doing uh banjo tui and uh perfect dark at the same time because graham Norgate had oh, just wow. quit to go and uh, work at free radical uh, and so i was like oh mm. so he said can you do dk64 too i was like oh my god how am i gonna do all three of them at once you know quite mm. hard so it was a bit of a tough tough year or two that was yeah so i kind of got dragged onto it mm. uh, and evelyn ended up doing something else and the sound effects on dk
0: that's how it worked out were you, I mean, how did you feel about being pulled on to, you know, I mean, Banjo-Kazooie and GoldenEye, I mean, James Bond is a big thing, and but Banjo was kind of a new project, but here's this established series that everyone already loves. Were you a little worried about, you know, coming in on it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, you know, because DK was a big one, at right, really, because that kind of launched the company in a way, like that first DKC had sold 10 million copies, it was like a revelation, you know, and Nintendo bought off the company, it was, it was spectacular. So to get to, to DK was really special. Uh, and I was a, a little bit scared because I was doing, already doing ban- banjo, which is an, Tui was another platformer, and DK is another platformer. I was like, oh, am I gonna get, you know, how am I going to get through both of these and try and keep them separate? So in my mind, I sort of thought that DK was as, had a darker sound in the music than banjo Tui did. That's how I thought about it. It may not appear to anybody else like that, but that's how I kind of looked at it. Because I thought DK music and DKC, the first one, was, was a little bit dark, you know. Um, and so I kind of tried to keep that spirit of Dave stuff from the first game in DK64 mm-hmm. and tried to keep it separate from Banjo-Tooie so um I mean you know it's you never know really I mean only you can tell me if I did that if that worked out or not I don't know um yeah I just tried my best you know
0: there's definitely some ominous ones I think creepy castle is is one of the the, the good ones or, or I'm sorry I mean frantic factory
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and the factory too yeah I thought that, yeah I, I thought the factory was quite spooky and I like the creepy castles and
0: do you have a favorite track? Do you have one that you do remember as as, as a, a fun one to work on or one that you still recall to this day?
1: Well, I do like Keeper Castles. I like that one a lot. In fact, that the the intro to that tune, right, before it goes into that kind of Adams Family thing, I'd written that before I was at Rare. It was one of the tunes I think I might sent in one of the demo cassettes that got never, never heard back from. And uh, so I kept that first intro, it, that bit I'd written before Rare, so I just kind of thought it fitted. So I brought it in and then it went into that kind of Adams Family bit, bit after that. You know, it was good fun doing the JK rap at the time. You know, I obviously got a complete slagging when it first came out. Everyone hated it. (laughs) But, you know, as I say, I've waited 20 years and everyone seems to like it now. So 20 years later, it's all right. At the time, maybe not, you know
0: yeah you got those rose tinted glasses i guess all the nostalgia well
1: yeah i mean you know people did genuinely not like it at the time <laughs> you know, well anybody i think the kids liked it because they didn't know
0: oh i, I loved it right, right. <laughs> <laughs> i was i was a kid back then so yeah
1: but i guess anybody who's a bit older was like oh grant's trying to do you know credible rap track mm-hmm. and i wasn't you know because i can't do that <laughs> uh, and so but like now it's kind of one of those tunes that everyone has, has a good laugh at so i guess that's that was the whole point really to have a good laugh at it so yeah it's fun to look back on it now
0: is that your voice in the DK rep? Uh,
1: I didn't do any singing in that. Like, in fact, it was that was George Andreas, the guy that did, designed it, and Chris Sullivan were the rappers, oh, okay. and then the chorus uh, singers were the most of the banjo team, like uh, Greg Mills, Steve Mills, Ed Bryan, Chris Peel, Chris Sullivan was probably in there too. I don't, I didn't do any any vocals on it.
0: So there's a lot of uh, sound effects and like a huge cast here. All these new Kongs, and you got K Rule and all his baddies. So who who voiced all the different characters in this?
1: So I voiced DK actually in the game. Mm. That was me. Um, Because it's just like no one else wanted to do it. So I'm like, oh, God, I'll do it. So I did it. (laughs) And then I think, I can't remember who did the rest. I think I'm sure Steve Males must have done Diddy, probably. Chris Sutherland would be involved for definite. I think Chris Peel too. Chris Peel did that, the snap of the crocodile type characters. He he, he, he could could bang his teeth together so loud that they nearly broke. Oh, God. And that was, I know, we used to go, Chris, for God's sake, you know, take it easy. He used to really go for it. Uh, And it was his teeth smacking together in his mouth that made that sound. You know it's hard to remember it all, but I mean, you know, I, I
0: definitely, definitely voiced DK. I did that. Mm-hmm. And did they kind of pitch it lower, or could you hit that? You know, hey. No, no, I pitched it lower. Oh, okay. So I, I, I did the okay and
1: banana. It's just pitched pitch down, you know. Yeah. So
0: I think that one is it when you save every time, it says, you know, okay. So that's probably yeah. ingrained in yeah. a lot of different uh, people's heads at this point.
1: Oh, def- yeah, yeah. You know, like a lot of the time at Rare with those effects, people just didn't want to do it. So I'd, I'd just, like, if, people pinata, I did, like, it definitely people Piñata. I did tons of the animal noises because no one else wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the game, everyone was so having such a good laugh with it. They were fighting to try and get to be characters, you know. It's like, you yeah. <laughs> know. So it was, uh, it was a kind of a slow, a, a slow to get to that point, you know.
0: Yeah. So a lot of people who work on games, you know, they get to the end of it and they kind of don't, you know, they're they're done with it there. They're good. They've seen enough of that game. Have you gone back and played Donkey Kong 64 since it was released?
1: Funny enough, when they released it on the the Wii, was it on the Wii, on the Wii shop? I, pl- I did play it back then. I, I my son downloaded it. And I hadn't really seen it since, really. It took, you know, it been a long time since I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And it, it was much the same way as when they released Banjo-Kazooie on the Xbox Live, thing, you know, the Xbox Arcade, sorry. It was so nice to see it again. And I did have a bit of a tear in my eye when the intro sequence played. I remember doing it all. And I got a real warm feeling when I kind of watched Banjo or Banjo-Tooie or, or Perfect Dark or any, any of those games and, and DKs. I had such fun memories of being at Rare in that in those 12 years that was there. You know, the, you know, such great friendships and just a great laugh. And like, you know, it's very hard not to get slightly emotional when I look at that stuff because I, I had such a great time being back at Rare in those days. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: So, younger listeners may know your work from Mario and Rabbits Kingdom Battle for the Switch. Hooray! How in the world did you get tapped to compose for that title?
1: So, I think it was ages ago. It must have been like something like 2015, maybe or maybe 20. 20- I get confused with the dates. It was around November time. I got an email mm-hmm. through LinkedIn from this guy called Gian Marco Zanna, who's the uh, producer in Milan, Ubisoft Milan, saying. Very formal, dear Mr. Kirkup, you know, we have a game you think you might be suitable for, uh, would you be interested in talking to us, and a bit like that. I was like, of course, cool, so I had no idea what it was, you know. And so when, when we got the NDA, signed signed all the rest of it, he it said, oh yeah, it was, it, the code name was Ram, Rabbids Kingdom Battles, he used to call it RKB. So I was like, oh, it's a Rabbids game, that's super cool, because, like, you know, my kids liked the cartoons, because, you know, the crazy characters, and I watched them a ton, ton of times, I knew they were funny characters. So I thought it'd oh, be good fun to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so time, a little bit of time went by, and I kind of I, they said, "Well, I want to fly you out to Paris to meet with the team, etc., and all that, you know." So um, and I remember they all met me at the door. It was very formal, and Mr. Kirkup came this way, and they led me through the back of the studio through lots of security doors. And I was thinking, oh, that's it's a bit weird, you know. So it's a rabbit's game. It's not that secret, you know. Uh, and so <laughs> and then I got led to another side room. In, in the when I got to the deaf part, where all the other guys were doing the computer stuff, you know, and uh, there was Davide Soliani and Romain Brio. And uh, also Isabel Ballet and Romaine Romain and Isabel were the two audio people and David as a creative director. I mean, a little bit chatty, but he said, you know, I'll Grant, I'll show you the game. So when he turned the game on, like Mario stood there. And I thought, oh, they must have been bored playing Mario because I'm, I'm a bit late getting there, you know, kind of thing. And then he started to move it around with the controller. I was like, uh, mm-hmm. so what's this then? He said, yeah, it's a, it's a Mario game. You know, you know did, did, did no one tell you that? I was like, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's a Mario. Mario I said, I said, nobody has mentioned that to me at all until this second in time. Like, daddy said to me, all oh, the colour just completely drained from my face. He said, you see, we sat there for about an hour without saying anything because I was so panicking about thinking, how on earth am I going to write music for a Mario game when Koji Kondo is the legend that he is? How am I going to go after him and make a complete mess of it when he's totally brilliant? Mm-hmm. I think, and they thought I didn't like the game because I was so sitting there quiet, panicking. They thought I didn't like it. I didn't like it, you know. <laughs> so I gradually came around, but I just kept thinking. I was obviously it was like equal parts excitement, equal parts dread. I was just thinking, oh Christ, how am I ever going to do this? It's just, it's beyond me, you know. Uh, and so, you know, we talked about how we're going to do it and you know what what we're looking for. So on the plane on the way home, I was thinking, oh, they're just going to hate every note, every note that I write, and if they don't hate it, Koji Konda's going to hate it, you know. Um, so yeah, that's what I kicked off. So it's a bit of a bit of a kicking the balls. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> at the start it was a little bit like, Oh my god. Uh, How am I going to do this?
0: Yeah, and I know a lot of people were skeptical of the game from the start, but it did manage to win over most players and critics in the end. At least it seemed that way. Yeah. So much so that nearly a year later, we got that swanky new Donkey Kong DLC, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, I think a lot of people did. A lot of people were blown away by the music, the tracks that you brought back and remixed and the new ones. Was there something that you wanted to bring to the table? What was your mindset going into that?
1: Well, I think on, on, the, on the on the main game, we'd, we'd sort of chosen to do the Mario, the Mario Castle theme from, from Mario 64. I mean, I love that tune, because yeah, I mean, I love playing that game. And it was great to kind of redo that. So that was super cool to do. And so we thought the same thing with Donkey Kong. We thought we need to do, bring back some of the old Dave Wise tunes, really. Um, you know, the, the main theme, of course, everyone knows. And also there's other bits and pieces in there that we kind of make reference to. So that was, you know, equal fun to do, you know, and I, and I got to do a little bit of some stuff that I'd done in DK64 is a little bit of that's mixed in there. Um, so, um, you know, that it, it was, it was for me to do D- DK again was amazing. I mean, the fact that I got to do Mario was was ridiculously amazing. And then the fact that I got to touch DK again was all equally ridiculously, you know, I just, it, those things you think of once in a lifetime, you don't think you're going to do it ever again, you know. Um, so, that, but I mean, that was all great apart from the kind of the E3 thing where I had to conduct critical Hit. And, you know that was a bit, of, a little bit scary, mm-hmm. like because it was about January. David said to me, look, we want to do a, you know, um, a, a trailer for the, for the Donkey Kong adventure, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, you know. He said, do you want to write the music? I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I thought, you know, some general three-minute jogging along DK thing, you know, like you know, one of those not things. I thought, oh yeah, yeah, great. I said, yeah. And also, and, that, and then about a week, later, he said, we think we want to have a live band at the thing. Says what? We want to have a live band. What do you mean? So, we're going to have a live band that syncs up to the video. I was like, bloody hell, Dad. I said, David, you know, it's not going to be that easy to do that. Because, like, you know, at the E3, it's really quick change around. Like, the game gets shown, the next game, there's no time in between to set a band up, you know. So, no, not it'll be all right. I'll sort it out. I was like, oh, God. And then the last thing, David goes, yeah. And also, Grant, we want you to conduct it live. I was like, what? I said, you know, David, I haven't conducted since, well, probably never, or if if ever, at school sometime, but I, I can't even remember. So oh, no, you'd be brilliant, don't worry about it. I was like, don't, it's just not. I said, David, it's just not easier. I said, if you told me that at the start, I might have made the music a bit bloody easier. So I can just wave my arms about a bit and it'd be all right, you know. <laughs> so I have to write the music, conduct it, sort of the click track out, like, you know, oh, geez.
0: But but everything went well, right? I I feel like I watched that live and it went, you know, there was no. No, issues. it went
1: spectacularly well. But we, we like it was on the Monday, right? So we went down to the theater on the Friday, the Saturday, the Sunday. And it went wrong every day. It's Friday, Saturday, every day it went wrong. Something went wrong. Something didn't happen. It got broken. So, but but it went it went it couldn't have gone any better. So maybe it had to go wrong all those times for it to go right. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, it, it went right when it mattered, right?
1: Oh no, but yeah, oh, I tell you what, I think I've got a few more gray hairs from those few days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the performance turned out great, and uh, people loved the DLC. Do you have anything that you're currently working on that you can talk about? And Mario and Rabbids too, right? You can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: wish. Now, you know, I can't talk about anything. I mean, I've done, I've done not that much since that. I mean, that was like around June, so I've done bits and pieces of, like last year, mm-hmm. but quite honestly, I I needed a bit of a rest because I kind of feel that like the whole Mario Rabbids and the Donkey Kong thing was a big three-and-a-half-year-ish, you know, thing. And the first year I was doing it, I was also doing Ukulele and a game called Drop Zone. I did a movie thing and uh, Ghostbusters as well. So I killed myself.
0: You did a did a track on A Hat in Time, right, as well?
1: Yeah I, did, yeah, yeah, I did that, yeah. I did two for them. Uh, you know, so I don't, I, it was been a pretty hectic time. It's my own fault because I kind of – when I was at Rare, right, I used to always just go, ah, oh, yeah, I can manage it and just take on lots of work and just get through it. Mm-hmm. And I, ne- I never got to that point where I thought, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that first year of doing my was I genuinely thought, you know what? I think I should learn a lesson here. I'm not infallible. I do have, I've do got limits like everybody else. So I think I did need that bit of time. So I've done bits and pieces since July. I've done this, some tracks for a game called Interstellar Space Genesis, which is like a, a Praxis Games company in Portugal. did it for them. and I did some stuff for the new Platonic game. Uh, I did the, I've just done this, this short animation called The Wrong Rock, which is actually it's by a guy called Mike Kaywood, who used to be at Rare. Uh, he worked on Cameo. Hmm. And he since moved to L.A., unbeknown to me, and has worked on lots of Hollywood blockbusters like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and Planet of the Apes and all sorts, you know, on, as a previous guy, a previous manager, supervisor. But he does his own animations, like, on the side. And so he kind of friended on Facebook. I said, "Grandma I didn't know you were here. I'm just doing this short animation. Do you want to do it? I said, yeah, of course. So, that's just in the festival r- rounds at the moment. So we'll, I think it will be out some at some point for everyone to see this year, but right now we're kind of doing the festivals with it. But it's super high polish. It's like a 14-minute short thing because you'd be worked at DreamWorks and all over the place. Mm. It's just, it looks like a DreamWorks movie. It's incredible, really. It was nice after the, after the kind of intense My Rabbids thing to get a bit of a break to do something that wasn't so... You know, you're gonna if you've got to do it by tomorrow, or you're dead. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, things are picking up right now, so I would think I'm gonna get back to it pretty, pretty quickly. But it's been nice to have that bit of a break. But I've got bills to pay, like anybody else. I've got a mortgage to pay, so I need to get some work. You know, yeah. Anybody out there needs needs an old composer? I'm available. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I look forward to to seeing what you're attached to next. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about Donkey Kong today.
1: No, thank you for asking me on. It's been, been a bit of pleasure as always.
0: As Nintendo entered into the sixth console generation, a new competitor stepped forth to make itself known—Microsoft. Nintendo was already struggling to keep up with Sony's PlayStation, so the company knew that this upcoming three-way matchup was going to be even more hard-fought. Nintendo had some stellar games in the works for their new GameCube system, and as usual, the fine folks at Rare were hard at work with development kits, hoping to carry over their impressive N64 streak. At E3 2001, Nintendo premiered a pre-rendered trailer for a new, rare title, Donkey Kong Racing. Instead of carts, planes, and hovercrafts, the Kong family navigated treacherous jungle terrain and undersea environments aboard classic animal helpers and enemies. Diddy Kong charged past on a rhino, Tiny Kong glided on a swordfish, and DK himself blasted through a forest on top of a large bee. The game was set to use a unique racing system that relied on players to find new forms of transportation as courses expanded. It was a novel idea that would sadly never reach the GameCube. In 2002, the unthinkable happened. Rare was bought by Microsoft. The tech giant purchased the prominent UK studio for a record $375 million. Rare's longtime status as a second-party developer meant that they were never actually owned by Nintendo and technically fair game for other companies to purchase. And thus, Rare's long history with Nintendo was all but severed, with their last home console game, Star Fox Adventures, released as their one and only GameCube title. With Rare gone, it was up to Nintendo to take the reins on future Donkey Kong projects. Their first was a rhythm game, focused around a bizarre new bongo drum controller. Players would clap and slap with the giant ape to the beat of popular songs, and some not-so-popular. Donkey Konga launched in North America in the fall of 2004, followed by two sequels in the following two years, the last of which was a Japanese exclusive. But Nintendo wasn't done with their bongo madness just yet. Nintendo's EAD Tokyo division were developing a new Donkey Kong game when they got some hands-on time with a prototype of the bongo controller. The team, who would later go on to create Mario Galaxy, decided to focus on the simple run, jump, and attack mechanics that could be controlled by the bongo. The final result, known as Donkey Kong Jungle Beat, was hailed as a unique and enjoyable adventure, though one that was over far too soon. Due to little marketing and low sales, the game doesn't often get the love it deserves, but it has found a cult following amongst GameCube and Donkey Kong fans in recent years. While the GameCube may have stumbled, its successor the Wii was an overnight success. At E3 2010, as the Wii's sales seemed to be slowing, then-Nintendo of America president Reggie Fizeme took the stage to make this announcement. Retro Studios in Texas has produced some great Metroid titles. But when they said they were ready for something new, we asked them to take one of the most treasured franchises in video game history to make it magic again. If you listen, you can hear it coming. Donkey Kong Country was back. Like the Super Nintendo original, Donkey Kong Country Returns starred DK and Diddy on a quest to save their home island from a new threat. Gone were K. Rule and his band of Kremlins, replaced with the hypnotic Tiki-Tak tribe. It was a much-anticipated return to form, providing players with some of the most difficult 2D platforming on a Nintendo console in years. DKC Returns would go on to be a top seller on the Wii, and was eventually ported to the 3DS. In more recent times, Donkey Kong Country returned once more for Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. This time around, DK could team up with Diddy, Dixie, and Cranky, each with their own special skill. Originally on the Wii U, the game was re-released on the Nintendo Switch with a new Funky Mode for less confident players, and for those who simply loved the radical Funky Kong. Donkey Kong's last major appearance was part of the DLC for Mario Plus Rabbit's Kingdom Battle, a game you may recall from my interview with Grant. Donkey Kong's first and only turn-based strategy outing was a fantastic addition to an already well-made game. For now, the future of Donkey Kong is unclear. Will we get another side-scroller, the first 3D platformer since DK64, some crazy rhythm game? We'll just have to wait and see. DK, do you hear that background music? Yeah. That means it's time for the part of the show where I get to talk about all the interesting tidbits that I couldn't fit anywhere else. Cool. Tidbit number one. Though it's never been officially stated by Nintendo, it has been hinted at many times over that the cantankerous Cranky Kong is the rambunctious gorilla from the original Donkey Kong arcade hit. Cranky often alludes to his youthful shenanigans, and can be seen at the start of Donkey Kong Country sitting atop the iconic red construction girders from the arcade game's first level. This has led many to believe that the Donkey Kong in DKC and beyond is in fact a grown-up version of Donkey Kong Jr. It's all just fun speculation, but it's an interesting bit of potential background. Tidbit number two. Though some have stated that Donkey Kong Country 2 was originally developed for the Virtual Boy, that's not quite the case. When I interviewed former Rare artist Stephen Hurst, he mentioned that a Donkey Kong Country entry was considered for the Virtual Boy, but a team didn't even attempt it until late 1995, after DKC2 had already launched. After a month of fiddling with Nintendo's Red Headache Machine, Stephen and his team gave up and moved on to new Nintendo 64 and Game Boy projects. Tidbit number three. Donkey Kong 64 is known for shipping with the N64 expansion pack, a console memory upgrade that made the system more powerful. Nintendo marketed the bundle as a way to improve the game's framerate and textures, and while it did help with both of those aspects, it was actually included for a far stranger reason. As it turns out, the developers of DK64 discovered a game-breaking bug that they couldn't seem to squash. The only way to fix the bug was to run the game on a system with the expansion pack. It wasn't clear why, but it was clear that the game would need the pack to be playable. Despite the enormous financial expense involved, Nintendo decided to ship the game and the expansion pack together. Challenger Approaching is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ben Bertoli, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Our opening track was created by chiptune composer Brandflakes. Flakes. His music can be found on YouTube under the handle brandflakes 325. All the music samples used in this episode are the property of Nintendo. Special thanks to Grant for coming on the show as our expert. You can find him on Twitter, at Grant Kirkhope, and you can hear his wonderful soundtracks in games like Banjo-Kazooie, Donkey Kong 64, and Mario Plus Rapids. If you have comments or suggestions for the podcast, or feel I left something terribly important out, feel free to tweet at SuperBentendo, or shoot me an email at heybertoli at gmail.com. This was the final episode of Challenger Approaching's first season. I'd like to thank everybody who's tuned in, given me feedback, and promoted the show. It takes quite a bit of research and sound editing to put together each episode, and it was certainly more work than I anticipated, but I'm very proud of how this series has turned out. Season 2 of Challenger Approaching isn't a sure thing, but after a break, I have a feeling I'll want to dive back in. Until then, feel free to re-listen and recommend the show to others. Be sure to subscribe to Challenger Approaching on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found if you want the first alert on the status of Season 2. So long for now!